2009, September 24th. Today is Astronomy 141, lecture number two, Astronomical Numbers and Units. Right. So, in order to, to get into this topic, in order before we can run, we have to learn how to walk, I think it's essential to go over what I would call the common language and notation we're going to use throughout this course. In particular, astronomers have to make use of certain special units for distances and masses and things like that, which are more properly scaled to the astronomical scale of things. But it's also useful to review the human scale of things. Now, this is the first real formal lecture. Of course, we're not going to dive into the textbook type material, and the real meat of the class starts Monday. So today is kind of just start picking up the, p the pace here. I'm always going to begin a lecture with a slide like this. This is what I used to call my key ideas slide. But really, it's going to set out the top title is going to tell us what this lecture is about, and then the three or four main points that this lecture is going to cover. When you build yourself a study guide for this class, this initial slide is going to be your friend, because this tells you basically the outline that I use when I build things like tests and, and homeworks. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce the basic notation and the physical units that we're going to use throughout this class. This is going to be mostly review for most of you. The idea is just to get everyone on the same page. Number one is that we're going to use scientific notation a lot in this class to express numbers large and small, because this class literally spans the whole range, from the smallest viral forms and molecular forms of life all the way up to the scale of the universe itself. And so we're going to have to use a compact notation that allows us to, to express those numbers without running out of ink writing zeros. We are also going to use the metric system for units of length, mass, and temperature often. So we'll get up to speed on that and say a little bit about those. And finally, I'm going to introduce today some special astronomical units, particularly for distances and masses, that we have to bring into play because of the scale of things that we deal with in astronomy very quickly gets beyond meters and kilograms and things like that. So today's class is just a quick review and get everyone up to speed on astronomical numbers and units. Now, one of the things, that, one of the reasons why we do this, one of the reasons why astronomers have to invent their own units is astronomical numbers can become extremely large. Now, again, I'm going to throw some numbers at you, and just to try to impress you, I'm going to use some numbers with like 12 or 15 digits of precision. You don't have to know these numbers to that precision or memorize them. But certain shorthand versions of these numbers you'll hear me use in words over and over again, you'll pick up as you go on. So, for example, on a test situation or a homework situation, I would give you that conversion rather than make you hunt for it. So, for example, big astronomical numbers we're going to have to deal with. The average distance of the Earth to the Sun is a little under 150 million kilometers, or in much more precise notation, 149,597,870.691 kilometers. Now, those of you who pay attention to units might say that's a surprising number of digits. That's basically saying I know the mean distance of the Earth to the Sun to one meter. That's this meter stick I'm holding up. Actually, I didn't give you the full precision. We actually know the, precision, the precise distance from radar measurements between the Earth and the Sun down to the level of a centimeter, or roughly the width of your small finger. That's an idea of the scale of the really high precision we're capable of. For the mass of the Sun, however, we don't have that kind of precision. It's, well, it's a number so big with so many zeros of kilograms that actually the English language and most European languages don't even have a way of expressing it. Now, it turns out the Japanese does, but I'm not going to try to render it today. There actually are ways to say big numbers like this, but it's nearly impossible. That's just a whole bunch of kilograms. We're going to find a much more convenient way to notate that. That's clearly presenting us with a problem. Finally, another place where we get not only large distances 
and very large masses when we talk about planets and stars, we also are going to encounter in this class very, very large measurements of time, great depths into the past. The universe is not only vast in distance, it has a deep time associated with it. Just one number to conjure with, the current best estimate of the age of the Earth is 4.6 billion years. And it's very much larger than the usual numbers we're used to dealing with when we talk about time. In that case, to express that number in traditional notation, I need to use eight zeros. So we're dealing with very large spans of time, very large lengths of distances, and very, very large quantities of mass. This immediately presents us with a problem of how we express those numbers in such a way that we can notate it cleanly. Now, this isn't to say that astronomical numbers are simply confined to astronomy itself. The, the popular expression, it's astronomical, just means, wow, that's really big. So for example, as of last Monday, the United States national debt was $11.8 trillion and counting. And in fact, it is in fact accounted public and private debt down to about the penny. And so it is in fact $11,809,239,000. Oh, I'm not even going to try to say that. Um, <laughs> it's just a hell of a big number. And you can all work out the population of the United States and figure out what your share is. Then a number which is fairly big is the number, and this is a nice little plot showing how that's fluctuated as a percent of GDP, for example, over the years. So that may seem like a big number, but actually it's about 60% of the gross domestic product, basically. We are in debt to about 60% of our income. Another number which is interesting is the number of Oreo cookies that have been produced since Oreo cookies were introduced at the early part of the 20th century by the National Biscuit Company, a.k.a. Nabisco. The current number off the Nabisco website is about 490 billion Oreo cookies have been made and consumed, and, which is a really scary thought, um, over the last century. That's an interesting number. That's one Oreo cookie for every star in the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies combined. So we're starting to see human numbers beginning to literally approach astronomical scales. All right. So how do we write these big numbers? How do we notate them? Well, we're going to use powers of 10 instead of running our pens out of ink by writing zeros or giving ourselves carpal tunnel syndrome by typing 30 zeros. For example, let's take that size for the mass of the sun in kilograms, which I wrote out with that huge number of zeros, I can express as 1.9891 times 10 to the 30. Now, I'm being naughty here and dropped off the units. The scientific notation is a two-part notation. The first part actually has a name. It's called the mantissa. The mantissa is what actually carries within it the, the measurement precision of the number. In this case, we know the mass of the sun in round numbers to about five digits, four, four points past the decimal place, or about one part in 10,000. The actual precision is a couple of parts in 10,000 in knowing the mass of the sun. So that tells me this is the guts of the number. That's the precision, the significant digits. All those zeros that trail behind it aren't significant. They simply set the scale. And because I measure the mass of the sun, for example, in kilograms here, I would need 10 to the power of 30 to express that scale on the scale of a kilogram. I'm just getting a little ahead of myself. For scale, a kilogram is the same mass as one liter of water. So if I wanted to make up the sun's mass in liters of water, I would need 1.9891 times 10 to the 30 of these one liter bottles to make up the full mass of the sun. So we're able to produce, again, scientific notation has two parts. The mantissa, which contains the significant digits and the, and the precision, the, the actual number I want. The exponent 
is the second least important. It simply sets the scale. In this case, 10 to the 30, because I've chosen units of kilograms. Not a terribly convenient number when talking about the sun, but I can't express it that way. So let me give you some examples of the use of scientific notation. Again, the one we just did, but let's just show you the difference here. This is the mass of the sun in, in this unexpressibly large number of in kilograms, but I can express it in a very nice and compact notation. And the advantage of the notation is not just simply in not writing those zeros. The compactness of the notation really comes down to is that's the only part of this gigantic number I really know. The zeros is just simply an accident of my choice of kilograms instead of kilotons or some other unit. And so this sets the scale. This basically carries with it the, the scale of the units. This part carries the actual measurement. And this just tells me how to multiply it to compare that scale with something else. Now this is the familiar way of looking at the scientific notation, notating the very large. It works the other way, notating the very small. So for example, I have a little cartoon picture here of a hydrogen atom. Now hydrogen atoms are not little BBs with hard edges, but you can define a diameter of a hydrogen atom in its, its rest condition. And that number is point, I'm not even going to try to say this, a whole bunch of zeros, 106 meters. Little tiny thing. That number by itself, just looking at that, is, I don't know about you, but I can't interpret that number. It's hard for me to look at that and get my head around it. But if I express it in scientific notation, I immediately set a scale. It's 1.06 times 10 to the minus 11 meters. So the beauty of the notation immediately becomes clear here because by using the powers of 10 to set the scaling, I immediately have at my fingertips the relative sizes. I've already mentioned one. If I looked at that for the mass of the sun with all the zeros, I go, uh, big. <laughs> but if I look at this, I say, oh, that's equal to 10 to the 30 of an everyday kilogram. I look at the size of the hydrogen atom, 1.06 times 10 to the minus 11 meters. 10 to the minus 11 is 1 10 trillionth. It's 1 10 trillionth of one of these, a meter stick. Now, we kind of have this feel, or at least we fooled ourselves into thinking we have a feel. Thousand times bigger, million times bigger, billion times bigger, or billion times smaller. So what scientific notation lets us do is take these enormous range of numbers in the universe. And in the universe, the range of numbers that become relevant spans a gigantic range, at least 50 powers of 10 or more in terms of units of size. In terms of units of mass, the size of the universe goes up almost, again, another 50, 60 powers of 10. And yet I can sort of encapsulate these in a way that I can kind of get my, my poor little human head around them. So scientific notation is really important to us. It's not just a computational convenience. It's a conceptual convenience. It's going to let me express large and small numbers in a way you can kind of wrap your head around. Now, one of the ways in which we try to wrap our head around is, we, is we've developed over the years a set of standard prefixes in front of the number. Now, you've used a lot of these in, in everyday life, and a lot of these you'll recognize. I've given some, some examples here. This table shows the, the basic division. It turns out human beings, we, okay, we all use base 10, unless you're mine and you use base 20, you count with your toes too. But, you know, nowadays we conventionally use base 10 for our 10 fingers. We also can conceive of simple powers of 10. 10 people is easy. That's kind of the size of your family. 100 people, that's, well, we're a little short of 100 people in this room. 100 people can fit in this room. 1,000 people, 
Well, that's kind of a big crowd on the Oval at lunchtime. 10,000 people, 100,000 people, that's filling the football stadium. So we can wrap our head around 100,000 million pretty easily. So what we do is we use these convenient divisions of kilo, thousand, mega, million, and so forth, to sort of be able to say these numbers in a convenient way. So for example, we use powers of a thousand as the convention. So factor of a thousand or 10 to the three is a kilo, like a kilogram or a kilometer. So for example, a kilogram, a gram is a lightweight measurement of mass. There are a thousand grams of water in here, or a kilogram, so I don't have to say a thousand. Um, mega is a million, so like a megawatt or a mega year. You'll hear me use the term mega year every now and then, although quite frankly, I think the regular English use of million years is better, and so I'll, I'll tend to, to sit for that. Giga for billion, gigabyte and giga year. So for example, my, my little memory stick that I'm carrying here carries two gigabytes. It basically contains two billion words of information can be packed onto the little tiny chip in here. And this is a year old, which means it's basically completely obsolete. I've actually got one on order that will store 64 billion words of information. That's more than all the books I have at home in one shot. I love technology. Lately, I've been buying disks in terabyte sizes. They're capable of carrying one trillion words of information. So tera is trillion, giga is billion. On this, and we don't really go much above tera. You know, terawatts, terabytes, things like that. We are starting to, actually in computation, we're starting to talk about petabytes and exabytes. Peta is 10 to the 15, exa is 10 to the 18. We really are starting to get data values. For example, some genomics experiments are projecting forward on protein experiments and mapping out DNA in humans and other animals. We're literally getting into the level where we will need petabytes of storage to be able to, to look and process at the amount of information inside DNA instead of living cells. So we really are talking about big numbers even in living systems. On the small end, the only, one of the only places we break with the multiples of 1,000 is on the centa, or the 1 100th, right? For example, you all carry a cent with you somewhere in your pocket. A cent is 1 100th of a dollar. So the cent is basically a very resilient number. In French, the centime, for example, is one one, used to be 1 100th of a franc. Now it's 100th of a, of a euro. Milla is 1,000th. So it's a millimeter. So for example, this meter stick that I've been waving around is measured out in centimeters. A centimeter is about the width of your finger, and a millimeter is one-tenth of that. A millimeter might be a very thin fingernail that's been trimmed down somewhat. That's sort of at the level between millimeters up to meters and kind of kilometers is human scale stuff. Below the human scale, so small that you would need a microscope to see it, we have the micro, or one one millionth of something. So a microsecond, so for example, some of the communication systems we use in some of our instruments have message passing times measured in, in, in microseconds. Uh, the micron is a measurement of distance which is one one millionth of a meter. Uh, the human hair, for example, is somewhere between five and 10 microns in diameter. So these are things that you can see with a microscope. So when you see the word micro, think small. Finally, about the shortest, smallest interval we'll ever use with a word in this class is nano, 10 to the minus 9 or 1 billionth. A nanosecond, which is the time it takes light to get from here to approximately a foot away. Or a, a nanometer, which is a small unit, so small it's close to the multiple of a wavelength of light. 
or actually a wavelength of X-rays. So nanometer scales tend to be atomic scales. So when you hear the word nano, think atomic and molecular. When you hear micro, kind of think of cells, small things. When you hear millimeter, think macro, us. Basic units, we're going to use these prefixes over and over and over again, so I'm just going to assume familiarity with them. Any questions about this stuff before we dive in? Should all be familiar from, from a long time ago. Okay, now what are we going to apply these to? Well, we're going to use metric. Now, it turns out that there are only three nations in the world that still use the so-called English system of units. Us, the United States, Liberia, a small impoverished West African nation, and Myanmar, a.k.a. Burma, a small, brutal, and rather corrupt uh, South Asian di um, dictatorship. That's not good company to be in. Uh, we've been metrifying since I was a kid. We still aren't metrifying, to give you some idea of just how spineless Americans are when it comes to switching to the metric system. The water company was at my house this morning to replace the water meter in our house because the old one was broken. What was the problem with the old one? It read in cubic meters and they replaced it one that measured in cubic feet. I'm, I'm so ashamed. Um, we just keep stepping backwards. So we're just going to have to suck it up and deal, and we're going to deal with the metric system because, in fact, the metric system is extremely useful to us in the sciences. For one, it's decimal. I can use decimal points, and I don't have to resort to fractions. Have you ever wondered why there's 12 inches in a foot? Does anyone know why? Numbers. 12 is divisible by 2, 3, and 4 without resort to fractions. So you can divide up things into two parts, three parts, and four parts without having to cut them. That's why we use 12. We don't have 12 fingers and toes. We have 10. So the 12 inches in a foot is purely a, um, a computational convenience for people who hate fractions. Time, 60 seconds, uh, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour. That's the Babylonians who hated fractions even more than you do. Because 60 is evenly divisible by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 without resort to fraction. It's a magic number. The Babylonians loved it. We're stuck with it in time. So we're going to use lengths measured in meters. When we talk about things that are sort of city scale, we'll talk about kilometers. When we talk about planet scale, we'll talk about tens of thousands of kilometers. We will express masses in a kilogram. The original definition of a kilogram was one liter of pure water at room temperature under standard air pressure. In fact, I'm carrying here a nice, liter, nice one liter Nalgene bottle I filled and weighed just before coming into class with one kilogram of water. You know, the way you get units is you get them in your hands. You get them into your, into your gut. So here's a meter stick. A meter is about how far you can hold your arms apart. Right? If you just held up and said, that much is one meter. So it's a nice, convenient, human-scale unit, right? Shakespeare's comment that man is the measure of all things is quite literal at times. You want to know what to get a kilogram into your, into your intuitions. A two-liter bottle of soda pop is two kilograms. So if you're going to carry home a bag for a party and you're going to carry home five two-liter bottles, how much mass have you got in your bag, everybody? Five two-liter bottles. Ten kilograms. A little over, excuse me, 22.2, 22 pounds. That's going to be heavy. You better have some friends if you're going to have a big party. You can predict how much your groceries are going to weigh because almost everything we buy in liquid form is mostly water. And water has a mass of one kilogram per liter. A liter is... 1,000 cubic centimeters. Time we're going to measure in seconds. All right, that's familiar. That's all cool. We're good with seconds. Great. 
Temperature we're going to measure in Celsius or Kelvin. Okay. I am proselytizing about the metric system, but I will confess to you that when it comes to the Celsius temperature degree system, I am a total and complete wimp. I use Fahrenheit. I just cannot get, wow, it's really hot out today. It's 40. I'm like, huh? What, do you live in the South Pole? No, 40 is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 40 Celsius. So all my European and Chilean colleagues and people I work with all over the world talk about Celsius, and I'm always going in my head, okay, how do you convert back that to Fahrenheit? Because I just don't have, I do not have an intuitive feel for Fahrenheit. I, I, Celsius. I can't do it. I'm sorry. But they're useful, and we will stick to them anyway. We're also going to use a much less familiar temperature scale to many people, the so-called Kelvin absolute temperature scale. So... Celsius, when we get down to human scale temperatures, I'm going to freely convert back and forth between Celsius and Fahrenheit because, yes, we should all be using Celsius, but the purpose of language is communication. And if I'm not communicating the idea clearly, what's the point? So that's the only place where I'm going to, I'm going to re relent. However, I am going to slip because I have, after all, been living in America for a very long time, and I'm an, I'm an American. I'm very proud of the fact I'm going to say pounds and inches and other fun stuff because it's just so deeply embedded in my language since I was a very small child. But let's define temperature. We all have a notion of temperature. Let's really define what that's about. Temperature is a measurement of the internal energy content of an object. That's fundamentally what it is. Our sensation of hot or cold is, a, is basically a relative sensation of contact with air that's got an awful lot of energy in it, like, um, oh, say, the air in this room right now because the air conditioning in this building is still out. Cold is a lower amount of internal energy, like, oh, say, the water's colder because I took it out of the fridge or an ice cube, I've used the refrigerator to remove internal energy from that water and keep it cold. We're going to experience cold sooner, not soon enough perhaps for this room, but close enough. If I could look inside of a hot room and a cold room, so like the inside of a refrigerator on the left and the inside of this room on the right, here in this animation, and I could look down to the microscopic level where I could see the individual molecules of the air, what I would see is inside the refrigerator, the air molecules are moving around relatively slowly and bouncing off each other. But in this room where the temperature is very hot, those air molecules are zipping by really, really fast. The faster a massive object moves, the greater its energy, the so-called kinetic energy or energy of motion. So what temperature really measures physically is the amount of the internal motion. So this would be a cold gas with slow stuff and a hot gas with fast-moving stuff. That's even true of solid materials. A cold solid, okay, the atoms of, in a solid are not free to move around. They're all constrained in a lattice. But in a cold solid, they're kind of vibrating relative to each other kind of gently. If you looked inside microscopically, inside of any material, any solid material, you'll find all the atoms kind of linked together and kind of like there were springs or something between them and they're kind of bouncing around. Cold is slow. A hot solid is really, really fast. Eventually, you get the hot solid so hot that atoms start to pop off the surface. It starts to evaporate or sublimate. Liquids are kind of in between. They're half loose, half bound. So this amount of jitter, the amount of rushing around, is the measurement of temperature. The Celsius scale that we've defined is a purely provincial way of measuring temperature. Zero degrees Celsius is when pure water freezes at normal temperatures. 100 degrees Celsius, there's that decimal system coming into play, is when pure water at standard pressure boils into a gas. 
Fahrenheit, remember, is minus 30, is plus 32 degrees Fahrenheit for, for freezing water and 212 degrees Fahrenheit for boiling water. Have you ever wondered what zero Fahrenheit was defined as? Why isn't zero Fahrenheit when pure water freezes? Does anyone know here why zero Fahrenheit was defined? No one? Mr. Fahrenheit defined it as when seawater freezes. Salt content in water lowers the freezing temperature. Baltic seawater, or normal ocean seawater, freezes at zero degrees Fahrenheit. That's where it came from. Not exactly a system you'd want to be using to set your temperature scale, but there we have it. The problem is that we're measuring those energies relative to water, but water is not as cold as things can get. We really would like to do this in an absolute sense. So William Thompson, later made Lord Kelvin in Britain in the 19th century, came up with an absolute temperature scale that measures the thermal energy content of an object, be it a solid, a liquid, or a gas. It's an absolute temperature scale in the sense that if I double the internal energy, I double the temperature in kelvins. So kelvin's very convenient to us. It's a direct measurement of the internal energy content. If I got a star with an internal temperature of 1 million Kelvin and a second star with an internal temperature of 20 million Kelvin, 1 to 20 is 20 times the internal energy directly. If I tried to express that in Celsius, I would immediately start getting into trouble because Celsius has its zero point set arbitrarily to when pure water freezes. So what's the zero point for the Kelvin system? The zero point for zero degrees Kelvin is absolute zero. 273 degrees below zero Celsius. This is the theoretical point at which all motion would stop in a classical system. Now, real atomic systems are not classical. They're ruled by a type of description of physics called quantum mechanics. So you can never reach zero. Zero is the bottom floor that everything tries to reach. I think the coldest thing we've ever achieved in the laboratory is a couple of nanokelvins, which is damn cold. <laughs> Pure water, zero degrees Celsius, freezes at 273 degrees Kelvin. Pure water boils at 373 degrees Kelvin. So you can see the difference in internal energy between when water freezes and when water, pure water starts to boil is only an increase of about 50% of the internal energy. In round numbers, we've gone from 270, actually, no, an increase of only about one-third, 30% in internal energy. So if I tried to do this in Celsius, you go 0 to 100. Well, 100 divided by 0 is 50. Oh, that's wrong. <laughs> by setting the arbitrary water temperature 0 point at water, we've introduced an infinity into the calculations. By setting it down here at absolute 0, everything gets bigger. There are no negative kelvins. There can't be, because you can't take out more energy from a system than it possesses. 0 degrees kelvin means you basically zero out the internal energy. You can't have negative energy. So kelvins are going to be very, very convenient for us. And when we have to talk about temperatures, like say the temperature of a planetary surface around a star, this is going to be the scale we're going to be using because I can directly relate the heating source starlight to the internal temperature of, say, the oceans or the surface of the air. So kelvins are very important to us. This is probably the toughest part of, this, of today's lecture. We're going to re re we'll review this when we come back to it again. Any questions about the Kelvin scale before we go on? So let's start getting an idea of the scale of things. Let's start walking through the scale of things. You will not find these pictures, for example, in your notes because this is going to take, this is one of the examples of an, of, a, of an animation I can't put into the notes easily. So we'll just sort of ride this one out. This is a meter. 
A meter is roughly the size of the human hand span. 10 meters is roughly the size of this room or roughly the size of a building. What about 100 meters? Well, 100 meters is almost the line of sight distance between my office over here on the fourth floor of McPherson and room 1005 down here. So 100 meters is, if you will, the scale of a building. A football field is approximately 100 meters. And a European football field, by the way, uh, that's soccer for those of us Americans, is 100 meters. American football is 100 yards, so a little short of 100 meters. I think if we went to a metric in football, it might make it a little bit more challenging, but only a little. 1,000 meters, well, 1,000 meters is so hard to say, we shift up to a kilometer. What's the scale of a kilometer here? I love Google Earth. That's how I made these pictures. That's going basically from our building through the stadium across the Olentangy River and ending up in the sports fields over on West Campus. That's one kilometer away. So 10 meters is a meter is the size of a person. 10 meters is the size of a building. 100 meters is the, uh, 100, 10 meters is the size of a room. 100 meters is the size of a building. One kilometer is kind of the size of the OSU campus. It's a characteristic size scale expressing that. 10 kilometers, well, now we're getting way out here into the railroad yards out there past the uh, 270 Beltway here in the picture. We're still anchoring the right-hand or eastern now side of the anchor right here on this classroom. At 10 kilometers, we are on the scale of a medium-sized city like Columbus, Ohio. The downtown area, for example, is roughly 10, meters, 10 kilometers in diameter. Let's go up another power of 10 to 100 kilometers. Now we're starting to get into the scale of multiple counties or the scale of a state. So for example, from our position here in Smith Laboratory, if I went 100 kilometers due west, I would end up near the shores of the Great Miami River out between Troy and Tip City. So 100 kilometers is kind of the size of a typical state in, in human, organi human social organization. A thousand kilometers to the west, I end out, out in the rural portions of Andrew County, Missouri, just near the Kansas and Nebraska border. So now we're starting to talk about thousand kilometer scales is the size of a typical nation, a typical European nation. The United States is a little bit bigger, but this is the typical size of a country in the world. Thousand kilometers kind of gives you a feel for the scale. If I'm talking about country scales, I'm talking about thousands of kilometers. It's when we get to 10,000 kilometers that we finally start getting to continental and planetary scales. If I was to go on a straight great circle path, do well, find the shortest path is when the 10,000 kilometers. Now I'm not going to go strictly west because it's kind of in the middle of the Pacific and kind of uninteresting. But I go on a great circle path and say, what's within 10,000 kilometers of me? I end up just on the Pacific coast of Japan, just outside Kobe, Japan. So for 10,000 kilometers, I've reached planetary scale. So, so far, so good. I've gone from human scale, the meter, up to planetary scales, and I've never had to stop using the meter or the kilometer. What if we jump off the planet? What if we go from the Earth to our nearest celestial neighbor, the moon? Now we're getting big. We're getting tens of Earth, actually something like 40 Earth diameters, 60 Earth diameters away is the moon at, at 384,000 kilometers away. So our or factor of 10, the 100,000 kilometers, is now actually inadequate to begin to bridge all but the smallest celestial distances. And we're already up to having to carry around five zeros to express this number. So we're immediately in trouble. We're, when we start talking about just local planetary scales, I've, I'm getting into big numbers. 
So it's time to renormalize our units and introduce a new unit which is more appropriate for talking about interplanetary scales. And that unit is called the astronomical unit. It's a very, it's a very provincial unit because it's defined, well, if, if man is the measure of all things in the definition of the meter and the kilogram, then the Earth is the measure of all things in the measure of the planetary scale. The astronomical unit is defined as the mean distance from the Earth to the Sun. Now, the Earth orbits on an ellipse around the Sun, so it's not always the same distance from the Sun as, as it, at every time around the year, but I can compute the average distance. And not too long ago, in fact, just the other day, we passed through the autumnal equinox, and we were approximately one astronomical unit from the Sun. An astronomical unit is approximately 1.496 times 10 to the 8 kilometers, or in word, about 150 million kilometers. So if you just carry in your head, 150 million kilometers is one astronomical unit, you get an idea of the scale. So if I draw a little cartoon of the inner part of the solar system with the four planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, viewed at kind of an angle here, then I would find that the average distance to the size of the Earth's orbit is about one astronomical unit in radius. Going up in scale a little bit, well, what's one astronomical unit? Let's go out to 10 astronomical units in size. 10 astronomical units is approximately, it's a little bit smaller than the diameter of the orbit of the planet Jupiter. So I have the asteroid belt and the planet Jupiter is encompassed within the inner 10 astronomical units of the solar system. So the realm of the rocky planets to the beginning of the realm of the gas giants in our solar system is tens of astronomical units, a good place to be. We're still working in numbers of AUs I can count on my fingers. If we go up to 100 astronomical units, we get to sort of the outer scale of our solar system in terms of the planetary system. The outermost planet is Neptune. The, one of the largest of the dwarf planets of the outer system, solar system Pluto, is here. And that whole, all these little blue dots you see around here are the distant Kuiper Belt objects we'll learn about later in the class. That's all encompassed within a sphere approximately 100 astronomical units in diameter. We can get, in fact, pretty far out of the solar system and still be part of the solar system. Here's the orbit of an object called Sedna, which orbits within a volume which is approximately 1,000 astronomical units apart. So the AU, the astronomical unit, and I'll always call it AUs for short, is basically expresses interplanetary scales. It's a very convenient unit for that, and it's measured in terms of the Earth to the Sun distance. Any questions about AUs? We're going to use these a lot. All right, we got to the planetary scales. We're pretty much running out of solar system. Let's go to the stars. When we get out to stellar distances, we have to use an even bigger unit. We, if we try to express the distance to the nearest stars in kilometers, we could talk about a unit we call the light year. The light year is the distance traveled by light, moving at the speed of light, in one calendar year turns out to be 9.461 times 10 to the 12 kilometers, about 9.4 trillion kilometers. If I convert that into astronomical units, it's 63,240 astronomical units. So just like the kind of dilemma we got into with the Earth to the moon, suddenly having an awful lot of zeros to carry around us to call it in kilometers, so too when we go from the sun to the nearest stars, we immediately get into hundreds of thousands and millions of, of astronomical units, and we need to once again pick a new unit which is appropriate for interstellar scales. In fact, the nearest stars are a little over four light years away, which you can do the math is a little over 250,000 astronomical units away. So astronomical units no, are no longer convenient to use. You are immediately into great big numbers, 
and we just got to the nearest star, and we haven't even started going out into the galaxy. Between this is vast empty spaces, so this really is the appropriate unit to use. There's an alternative unit you may hear about. If you took Astronomy 162, you would run into the parsec. We're not going to use the parsec as much in this class because the light year is, is probably more appropriate and it's what your book uses. So here's a little cartoon of the sun and the nearest star, Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri. It's a little triple star system. are between 4.22 and 4.26 light years away. What this means in practical sense is that light leaving Alpha Centauri that we see today left Alpha Centauri 4.26 years ago. So we don't see Alpha Centauri as it was today. We see it as it was about four and a quarter years ago. Just like we are about eight light minutes from the sun. So we don't see the sun instantaneously. We see the sun as it was about eight and a half minutes ago. Light has a finite speed, and space is filled with vast, vast distances. This vast distance is going to come back and get us later, and we're going to use this a lot. Let's say we go out to a scale of about 10, 20 light years around the sun. We're starting to now pick up the parts of the solar neighborhood, the nearest by stars. Some of these have names like Sirius the dog star, now becoming visible in the fall sky. Um, many of these stars, however, have names Alpha Centauri we just talked about. All the rest of these stars, with a couple of minor exceptions, are actually too faint to be seen by the naked eye. Procyon here, the, the raccoon star, Sirius and Proxima Centauri are the only three real naked eye stars within the nearest 30 light years. All the rest of these stars require photographic material or telescopes to see. They're very faint. Maybe if your eyesight's really good, you could see Epsilon Eridani or some of these others. We'll talk about the naming conventions of stars later, but, but these, some of these are familiar. Those of you who know science fiction will pick up on some of these things. Star Trek fans will recognize, for example, Wolf 359. But when we talk about the Milky Way of Galaxy, when we're talking about 200 billion stars, the star system that we live in, from the center of our galaxy to the sun is 26,000 light years. So it's an immense star system full of mostly empty space carrying 200 billion stars around. You can see why we wouldn't bother to express this in astronomical units. It's a billion, over a billion and a half astronomical units from here to the center of the Milky Way. And we're not actually at the outskirts of the Milky Way. We're just sitting here off to one side of one of the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy. So encapsulated in this picture and in the uh, problem of the large units we're dealing with in astronomy is one of the problems of understanding life in the universe. It's going to be very difficult to look for life beyond our own solar system because of the very, very vast distances involved. And this is going to have interesting implications later on for understanding the problem of how, oh, say, intelligent life on one world might go to visit intelligent life on another. They better pack for a long trip because there are vast distances. And this leads to some very interesting insights that we're going to pick up a little bit later in the course. Similarly, with planetary masses and sizes, the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Sun are so big that if we express them in kilograms, for the Earth, about 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. So 10 to the 24 of my liter bottles to make up the Earth's mass. And as we saw before, about 2 times 10 to the 30 of my liter bottles of water to make up the Sun. The Sun, if you do the math here, is about contains a mass equivalent to 333,000 Earths. So it's pretty clear that when I talk about planets and when I talk about stars, it's convenient to pick new units. And we're again going to be provincial. When we talk about planets, we're going to put their masses not in kilograms, but in units of the mass of the Earth. 
So I won't talk about the mass of Jupiter in kilograms as being thus and so many kilograms. I'll say 312 Earth masses. If I'm talking about other stars, I might talk about a star that's two or three or ten times the mass of the sun. So again, it's, it's this process we call renormalization. I'm going to pick a unit appropriate to the thing I'm talking about. They're ultimately translatable into the terms of kilograms, but we are almost never going to use these conversions. When we're talking about planets, we'll talk about Earth masses. When we talk about stars, we'll talk about solar masses. Similarly, when we talk about interplanetary distances, AUs, interstellar distances, we talk about light years. And so you're going to have to get, you'll get practices this, you have to start getting a little facile with switching into some unfamiliar units. And that's just something we're just going to, we're going to do in this class. Finally, one last little, little point I want to make, which has to do with the differences between mass and weight. We use the word mass and weight interchangeable. I talked about weighing the bottle, because I actually used a spring scale to look at the force of gravity on the bottle and compare that and turn it into pounds or kilograms equivalent force. But it's important to remember that mass and weight really measure different physical quantities. Mass measures the amount of matter in something. So if I've got one liter of water here, that's a certain number of water atoms and uh, plastic polymer that's holding them in the bottle. If I pick this liter water bottle of up, put it on a rocket ship, and send it to the moon, it would still be one liter of water. There'd be the same number of atoms, the same composition of carbon and hydrogen and all that good stuff in here. But if I go from the Earth to the moon, I'm going to a different gravity field. So how much force I have to push through my muscles to hold up that liter, that kilogram of water is different. The stronger gravity on the Earth is six times in round numbers the gravity on the moon. So if I put the liter of water or my goofy fellow here who's 100 pounds on Earth, send him to the moon, he weighs one-sixth that or 16.6 pounds. There's still the same number of atoms of goofy guy in the ball cap here because that's the physical count of the atoms making up that person's body. But his weight is a measurement of the local force of gravity on him or on a rock or something else. This distinction is going to matter to us because as we consider different planetary or other places for life to arise, we have to take into account things like the surface gravity in that world will be different than a place the size and mass of the Earth. That surface gravity affects the weight of things. It affects certain structural forces that are going to be on living things. It affects the pressures of atmospheres and everything else. So the distinction between weight and mass is going to be important to us. So to illustrate the difference between weight and mass, let's take a familiar mass and move it to different places in the solar system to set the scale. Now, it's rumored that Elvis died a few years ago, and at the time of his death, he weighed on Earth 255 pounds, or a mass of 116 kilograms, which is the measurement of the number of atoms in Elvis. If Adam, in fact, Elvis had not died, but in fact was hiding out on the moon, he would be 42.2 pounds of weight, to use the English unit, but it's still 116 kil kilograms of Elvis. If, in fact, as some of his more rabid fans portray, he actually is on Mars, there's still 116 kilos of him, but he would weigh now 97 pounds in the Martian gravity field. Send him to Jupiter, a planet 318 times the mass of the Earth, its gravity field is stronger. We've now got 600 pounds of Elvis, but there's only 116 kilos of him in actual atoms. And if we sent Elvis to the surface of the sun, properly protected so he didn't burn up, he would weigh a stunning 7,144 pounds that may be, in the words of the king, a big hunk of hunk of burn and love, but it's still only 116 kilograms of the king of rock and roll. 
Any questions? Good. In that case, I will see you all tomorrow.